I want to give you an opportunity to critique us because I'm really curious from your perspective what we've done wrong, in your opinion. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I have great respect for what you've built and you've inspired us in a number of ways. I think there are a few things that I would have done differently if I were in your position. I think... The Business of Betting podcast is presented by Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Since 2012, Optimove has served iGaming operators from startups to industry leaders. Today, four out of the top five U.S. operators personalize player experiences with Optimove. iGaming operators know their growth journey begins and continues with Optimove, the number one CRM marketing solution for the iGaming industry. Visit Optimove at ICE and mention you listen to this episode to receive an Amazon gift card. What is up, everybody? I hope you dusted off your snowy shoes. If you're, I guess if you're in North Dakota or South Dakota, they're the only ones that got snow over the break. But right now, New York's getting snow and the Northeast is getting snow. Hope everybody had a nice end of the year. We're starting 2024 off of the bang with Jacob Pratinsky. Jacob is the CEO and co-founder of Novega Startup, building the first commission-free sports betting exchange, which has raised over $7 million from Y Combinator, Lux Capital, Joe Montana, Paul Graham, and other investors. He's a graduate of Harvard. Harvard's been in the news a little bit and where he studied philosophy, political science, and economics. Jake has been an avid sports better for years. And after getting limited by Sportsbook for being profitable and growing frustrated, he started this company. So welcome to the podcast, Jacob. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here. So where does this find you? Are you uh, in the East Coast, West Coast? Yeah, we're, the company's based in New York, which is where I'm from, but we just launched in Colorado six days ago. So I, uh, I'm heading out there tomorrow, 5 a.m., and we'll be out there for a couple of weeks. Is New York getting snow? I think I saw in the papers that New York might be getting missed, but did you get hit? We got like half an inch yesterday. So okay. technically the first time we got snow in two years, but it doesn't really count. Is it? Really? It's been that long. Yeah, I mean, all of last winter was like in the 50s. I think there's only like a handful of days where it got below freezing. Man, climate change is insane. I was in the, for my holiday, I was in the mountains of France and it was like 48 degrees, 45 degrees the whole time. And, you know, normally it's snow and super cold and it's, it's just crazy how warm everything is. Wow. Were you skiing? No, I wanted to, but no. There was like, where where we went to is called Jura, which is sort of like, it's not the Alps, so there aren't very big mountains, but the stuff that was open, there was like one slope open, so nothing too exciting. What do you think about the hullabaloo at Harvard? Have you been following that or you're not really? Yeah, I've actually been following it pretty closely. I While I was a student, I was on, I, I was the editor of the Crimson, the, the opinions page. So I did okay. some on the administration. I was also on the board of Harvard Hillel, the Jewish organization on campus. And so I, I've been following very closely. I think it's an interesting sort of proxy war between, you know, anti-DEI conservatives and sort of free speech advocates and, of course, all of the Israel-Palestine stuff. So, yeah, I have lots of thoughts, very complex, nuanced issue and been following closely what's going on with Bill Ackman now. And it's fascinating. So do you want to share your opinion or uh, is it too complicated for this podcast? Uh, no, I mean, I can share the 30 second. Yeah, give me the 30 second point of view. Yeah, well, I mean, I I do think that it's it's clear there are people who are motivated by, I would say, who, who are acting in bad faith to try to remove these people. But I think given their testimony in um, in Congress, I think it is true that if you just replace the word Jews with any other minority group, I think there would be far more outrage. And I think that alone is grounds for removal. And I, I also do think some of the plagiarism stuff is pretty significant. I don't think that 
removing her will have as much of an impact as I think both sort of proponents or defenders of her will think. I think it's obviously a much more sort of ingrained structural issue, but I do think it is probably a necessary first step. But I mean, I also think, you know, it'd be one thing if these universities had very principled sort of absolutist views on free speech, but given sort of the penalization of of microaggressions and other things in the last few years, I think there clearly is a double standard as it applies to certain minority groups. Mm, interesting. And I should know this, I guess, but did Bill Ackman go to Harvard? He went to, to both the college and the business school. Because I was curious, like, why he's got such a, I mean, he seems to try to take these sort of, God, I don't know. He gets very selective with his outrage and, and he pointed it at Harvard very, very brightly yeah. the last few weeks. Yeah, he has a family that went there who, who was actually there at the time I was there. So I think it is a personal issue for him. But, you know, he is an activist investor. I think he does, you know, sort of shine a, a light at a particular institution and sort of go all in. Actually, my first job when I was working as uh, a summer analyst at a hedge fund, my job was covering a, a company that he was trying to sort of remove the, the CEO from. So I definitely saw a lot of parallels between that and, you know, now he's sort of targeting then. <laughs> He's getting bored of this day job, maybe. From my perspective, it's a super tough issue. My DEI, my quick opinion on what's going on is that two th two big things happened. One, the George Floyd thing happened, and that just shocked the world. I mean, that was such a crazy uh, watershed event, I think, in America and around the world. And people are like, holy shit, like, this is not cool. We have to do something. Coupled with the fact that I think Trump was so extreme in terms of trampling on, uh, you know, norms and being a decent person, you know, like from calling judges all kinds of names to immigrants all kinds of names to, you know, I think a lot of the DEI was sort of the uh, antibodies reaction to the George Floyd situation and the Trump situation. And so I think what happened was the things swung too far to the one side. And what I am kind of looking forward to is like things sort of normalizing, if that's possible, where things sort of get more, more sane. But I think these college professors kind of got caught in the trap because of, you know, the George Floyd plus the Trump being such a piece of shit put everybody in a really tough position for a long time. I had an interesting experience with the Black Lives Matter where I kind of had, I mean, I'm extremely political personally and I follow politics very closely, but I try not to let, when I'm wearing my CEO hat, unless it's Brexit, I'm very public about Brexit as a CEO because I think Brexit was one of the worst things that the UK d could do for itself. But when I'm wearing a CEO, I try to be as apolitical as I can be. And I sort of followed that playbook with Black Lives Matter. And I had a, like a month or two after it, I had a black employee came up to me and say that they were really saddened that I didn't say something. They think white men, especially, or white people of privilege should be speaking up on behalf of blacks and trying to bring light to this. And it really resonated with me. And so, you know, we did end up making a Black Lives Matter statement. We did put something on our homepage in support of the movement. And it kind of starts this like, and I don't regret doing that, but it starts this slippery slope of like, well, if you do the Black Lives Matter, then you have to do the next thing, do the next thing. So I don't know. I don't, I'm curious if you have any thoughts of my ramblings about my position on things. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a position that I share. I mean, I... I think the people I work with know certain views I have, but I definitely try to sort of keep those out of the office for the most part. I mean, we do, I'd say, have like dispassionate conversation about politics, you know, more analytical and less normative, less sharing our opinions. But, you know, I think Kalechi and I, my, my co-founder is black. And, you know, I think that a couple of our investors were like, why don't you make that more part of your, your pitch? And I think that we sort of felt uncomfortable by that. And 
I think also sort of felt similarly that like it's not really the role of of companies to be, you know, sharing stuff about whatever the sort of the hot topic of the day is, whether it's, you know, Ukraine or anti-Semitism or even if like we do sort of within the company all share um, a certain perspective, I think it does sort of obligate you to speak on future issues. And uh, in my personal life, I'm, I'm very vocal. I actually took off a semester from Harvard to work on a BLM organization while all of that was happening. But I, I, I never felt like it was really the role of, of the company to take stances on anything like that. Funny that you mentioned um, Brexit because that was that's, that's what got me into prediction markets. I placed a big bet on Brexit to happen, and that's sort of like what ultimately got me interested in, in trading in politics in the U.S., which got me interested in sports, and ultimately what uh, led me to create Nofig. Nice, that's a nice winner. Five, nice five to one winner or something like that. What site did you use to place that on? There, there were a couple of sites. Play some bets with friends as well. And there was a, a large. I'm not sure if I'd call it a gambling scene or or whatever, but there's sort of adjacent to the poker community at Harvard MIT. There are lots of people who are interested in trading on different events. A little over the counter action. It's funny you mentioned Brexit in the sense. I mean, the reason I got into this space is because I was, as as everybody knows by now, I follow politics. I was really into the 2004 election, George Bush versus Kerry, and uh, I came across in trading trade sports and followed it. You know, I check it multiple times a day, and I just thought it was really fascinating. Well, the one of the first things that stood out to me in Novig was that it was backed by Y Combinator. So. Y Combinator was founded around the same time Smarkets was founded. And so it kind of hadn't got the prestige or the name recognition. In hindsight, I completely wish I had applied. I remember, I think they give like $100,000 now for like 6%. But back when they first started, I believe it was like $5,000 per founder for like 6%. I did that math and I was like, ah, oh, fuck this dilution, which is just like in hindsight was like a crazy bad decision. Not that they would have taken me at the time, but I wish I had applied and wish I had gone to it. I don't know. I, you know, I saw Paul Graham's one of your investors. So I assume you talked to him about betting. Like did Paul and Y Combinator change its attitude towards sports betting or did they not see a lot of good applications for it? So I, I think that they've always been very, you know, I think there's certain VCs that have particular theses have like a prepared mind attitude where they're looking for companies in certain spaces. I think YC is sort of the opposite of that, where they're basically indexing for the best founders. So I, I would say that they, even when they accepted us, actually the partner that accepted us said, we love you guys. We think you're super sharp and have a great business plan, but we're very, I'd say, cold on, on the space in general and would encourage you to pivot or, or consider pivoting. So I wouldn't say that you know their attitude towards sports betting changed significantly. There was a company in the batch prior to us that was trying to do something similar, but at the federal level with the CFTC, a company called Railbird. So I think that they were already somewhat familiar with the regulatory space when they accepted us. You know, I had a very short conversation with Paul Graham before he decided he wanted to invest. And the questions he asked us were very non-standard. And I'm not sure exactly what we said, but he was... Passed the test. Yeah. And then he was close friends with, or he is, I guess, close friends with Joe Montana. And then he introduced us to him as well as you know, a handful of other investors that were within the sort of the YC orbit. And that's sort of how we got our first institutional capital. Nice. From afar, I've never met Paul, but I'm a huge fan of Y Combinator and Paul Graham. And especially his essays were very influential for me as a young founder. You know, my company is based in London. And so I wasn't in Silicon Valley to kind of get the uh, network effects of the Americans, but I found his uh, essays really helpful. 
why don't you introduce Novig to the audience in your words? Yeah, we're building what I would say is the first high-frequency commission-free sports betting exchange. The idea is to create a peer-to-peer marketplace that resembles any other sort of two-sided marketplace, cut out the middleman, allow people to request their own price or to take the best price that the market offers. Instead of four or five sports books competing for the best price, we allow millions of people to, we're trying to enable public price discovery via central limit order book. But I would say that's sort of the more jargony explanation of it. I'd say we're really just trying to build the best sports betting app, period. And I think the way to do that is via exchange technology. And we just launched in Colorado, our first market last week, looking to expand to other states in the coming months. Cool. Well, I have a general statement and then two pieces of things and I'll, I'll throw it over to you. So my general statement is that uh, when I started Smarkus 15 years ago, the regulation was a lot easier. The competition was easier. So many things were easier. And now I would say that on one hand, I think maybe the technology stack is easier to use because uh, there's so many automated tools and blah, blah, blah. So like getting live with the working stack might be a little bit easier, but I would say regulatory and competitive landscape has gotten a lot more difficult. So I'm curious to see what your answer is, like why you think you can enter this space. I think Nigel was sort of finger in the air when he said this, the founder of FanDuel, but I think he said you need two, three, four hundred million dollars to start a sports book. And I'm curious why you think that in 2024, 2023, you can have seven million dollars and kind of play. Well, actually, why don't I pause there and get your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, well, I'd say we've done it with seven million dollars. So I could opine about sort of in the abstract about whether I think, you know, how much money is required. But Right now, we're the primary market maker on our platform. So we're assuming principal risks sort of similar to how you did at Smarkets and Hanson, um, which I think is one of our differentiators. So essentially, we're, you know, we have all of our uh, pricing in-house. We have our matching engine in-house. We have our trading in-house. So I think essentially built a, a sharp sports book that is functionally similar to a Circa or a Pinnacle with a dozen people and $6 million. I think that is that is that all you are right now, 12 people? Yeah, all, all based in New York. That's also, I think, a differentiator of ours. I know, you, you know, you said that you had all of your traders and your team in London, a handful in LA, but some of our competitors, you know, outsource across the world and lots of sports book trading, outsource pricing and affiliate marketing and so on. I think our approach was really to hire a very small team of eight players, largely not from the sports betting space, except for a couple traders. And I think when we started this, we felt like, the business model was broken of sports betting. And we wanted to sort of transform that to what we viewed to be a more scalable and a more sustainable business model. But I think as we began building, we realized that there's far more that was broken about the industry and that we could really compete on all fronts from pricing to trading to marketing, you know, do some B2B and B2C stuff. When I founded, Betfair was kind of the 800-pound gorilla in exchange space. And I, and to a certain extent, they still are. So just to give you, you know, an opportunity to punch up a little bit, where has Smarkets fucked up? Where do you think, what should we have done differently to have not created the opportunity for you to enter this space? Like, I want to give you the opportunity to critique us because I'm really curious from your perspective what we've done wrong, in your opinion. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I have great respect for what you've built and you've inspired us in a number of ways. I think there are a few things that I would have done differently if I were in your position. I think that it depends if you're optimizing for, I'd say, more of a lifestyle business or a sort of a sustainable business or, you know, if you wanted to sort of continue in growth mode. But I think that 
it's hard to attract institutional capital at scale if you're trading your own book. And I think that makes it difficult to, in a low margin business, to attract sort of the, the necessary levels of liquidity to really overtake sort of the Bet365s and, and Patty Powers. So that's sort of the first thing, even though we, we are at the moment trading ourselves, I think that's not something we want to do in the long term. Of course, who knows if that's really feasible to step back. Obviously, the margins of charging a market maker is very different than trading yourself. And it's hard to sort of turn that off when you're printing money. Second thing is, I mean, if I were you, I wouldn't have launched SBK in the US. I would have, I mean, obviously, given what we're building, I would, I'm very bullish on exchanges taking over the US market. I think, you know, some people say that it's going to be similar to the UK or Europe, where it's, you know, 10 to 13% of the market. I mean, I think it's going to be 60, 70%. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly bullish. I think it's very hard. There's FanDuel and DraftKings are profitable now, but the, the rest aren't. I think it's very difficult when they have to be assuming principal risk to acquire customers at six, $700 a head. And I think that our business model is far simpler. And I think when you had uh, Dean on for profit, who I respect a lot, he said, oh, we'll never be able to compete with DraftKings and FanDuel. And we're sort of going after this sort of niche corner of the market. I'd say our view is we want to go after every single sports better there is. And I think we can compete with FanDuel and DraftKings on literally every single product they offer. Some of that might not necessarily be peer-to-peer. It might be that we're quoting Parlay or multiples ourselves. But I think that, like you, I'm a very big believer in exchanges. And if I were you, I would have sort of doubled down on that. Cool. That's good feedback. So some comments on that. I take your point on institutional liquidity. And when I started, that's what I wanted to do. I had no intention of ever being in the principal risk business. But what I've learned, and I think you will find out in a few years, is that there aren't really institutional liquidity providers. So, you know, like you have the odd tower tower and jump trading, and you have Nelly at a Susquehanna and a few other places. But I believe actually um, jump, I think, is either in the process of or getting out of or has already gotten out of sports betting entirely. And and I wouldn't be surprised if Tower does. And Nelly, I think, will stick around. But a lot of these guys are, are not in it for the long haul because there's so many issues with providing liquidity, which is why we continue to do it ourselves. As far as I know, I think we're one of the world's largest market makers already. Having done it on that side of the fence for years, I can understand why the jumps and the towers struggle with it because there's just so many differences that aren't immediately obvious between finance and, and sports betting. So my perspective is it would be amazing to sort of have, you know, the Citadels and the uh, whoever else is sort of like the systemic market makers are trading sports, but I don't see it happening because of the various reasons in, in sports betting that prevents them from getting involved in the space. I think the tide's going to go in the other direction. I think there's no real platform for them to trade programmatically in large volumes. I think as exchanges begin to attract more volume, the the opportunity will be there. I think like the the reason why some of them might be exiting the market is because of the operational challenges and the somewhat small opportunity that exists. And I think that as you see that increase, I think there'll just be more and more institutional interest. And there are a number of crypto funds that are getting into sports betting now. There are a handful of other sort of crop trading firms from Wall Street that are considering opening sports desks. So, you know, I think we're really aiming to be the central infrastructure for the financialization of sports betting writ large. And I think that my, my co-founder Kalechi likes to say trading begets trading, that the more people you have on the platform, tighter spreads become, the more attractive it becomes for future users. And 
ultimately want to get to a place where you have 30 bit of spread in all of our markets. I'm going to push back on that. And by the way, I'm pushing back in the interest of having an interesting conversation. Like I want you guys to be successful. Like the industry needs more startups in this space. Right. And, and I think what you guys are doing is really cool. So like, this is not to like knock on what you're trying and, and I'm rooting for you guys. I get this sort of, and I'm, I'm an ex trader. So I kind of get the liquidity, but gets more liquidity, but there's a few systemic issues in, in sports betting that kind of doesn't align with that. One is, I mean, the first property is sports betting is that it's a zero sum game. That's a huge difference between almost all financial. I mean, there are zero-sum games in finance as well, but most stuff is not zero-sum. And then also, not only do you have zero-sum, but the thing turns over very fast. So I'm making a number out, but like the average risk is in the system for a couple hours, you know, and people wager before the event and uh, the event's over and it's settled and the money turns over so fast. And so you need a huge influx of losing capital, basically retail money or uninformed traders to kind of come into the system. And that's what powers the whole thing. If you have smart market maker A going against smart market maker B going against smart market maker, that's a mouthful. You know, if you have just a lot of market makers kind of going head to head because of that zero sum nature, they're just going to compete each other out of business, essentially. Go ahead. Sorry, no, I push back on that. I think those are arguments for my case, really. I think that turnover being very fast, I think enables more liquidity because you don't have to tie up the money. I think futures markets is very difficult to have liquid liquid markets because there's opportunity costs to tying up your capital if there's no if there's no credit. And I think that of course it's zero sum, but most financial markets I would say are zero sum and with sports betting you have I would say it's zero sum from a financial perspective, but there's tremendous I'd say entertainment value or utility that derives from non monetary outcome. So you, you really do have, and I think that's what makes it attractive for institutions is you have hundreds of millions of people, you know, wagering billions of dollars, not strictly for monetary gain. In fact, I'd say that they're largely not that price sensitive. And, and that is why it's, I think, necessary for an exchange to be successful. They have to go after the retail customers. And I'd say that's my other critique of other sports betting exchanges that have existed so far is that they haven't really done that properly. You have to appeal to the casual recreational better, build a UI for them. You know, I think like if my plan goes successfully, I would say we don't necessarily want every user of Novig to know that we're an exchange. You know, they want, I want people to download us because our app is prettier, our onboarding is easier, our customer support is better, it's more social, it's more transparent. You know, I don't think that we strictly want this sort of toxic ecosystem of sharp betters betting against one another. But no matter, like, if you, if you say uninformed trader, retail trader, whatever term you like, let's say you're going to have a fixed amount. So, like, let's say they're going to lose X amount trading the national football, the NCAA football championships tonight, right? If I'm yeah. correct. So there's a fixed amount. Let's call it a billion dollars is going to be lost on that. The zero-sum nature, like, a billion will be won, a billion will be lost. So, like, let's say you have 50% market share magically. You have 500 million. I mean, these are kind of crazy big numbers that sound nice. But, you know, if you have institutional trader one, two, three, and you add institutional trader four, five, six, I don't think the trading is going to get better. And the pie that is going to be shared amongst the smart money will be fixed. So by my point is by adding more smart money into the liquidity mix, you're not going to get more retail flow. And I think that's maybe a fundamental area we probably see that differently. But I, I don't think putting up a 30 basis point type bid offer spread with more and more liquidity will get more retail flow, which I think is where 
you don't need the institutional money. I think what the latter half of what you said, where you don't want people to know you're an exchange. I mean, that's kind of our go-to-market philosophy with SPK, like exchange prices, sportsbook interface. And I completely agree with that. And to me, the whole ball game of winning in sports betting is getting the retail flow into your, getting the order flow from retail users onto your platform. It doesn't really matter if you're a sportsbook or an exchange or anything like that. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, I would push back on that. I, I mean, I guess we disagree slightly on this, but I would say that there's a, a wide spectrum from people who are price sensitive to people who are not price sensitive, who are sharp to, to casual. Uh, I'd say most people fall somewhere in the middle that are spending on sports, both because it's fun and because they think they have some shot of making money. And I think that it's like the Bezos quote that in the long run, there's zero misalignment between, what is it, uh, customer experience and company value. I think that, you know, the more institutional traders we have, the tighter the spread does become. And I think price does matter. I think probably matters less than some people in gambling Twitter or sort of sharp betting community think. But there's also an additional value of having more institutional traders is that they have less leverage over the exchange, over the protocol. And both from a unit economics perspective, I think it makes it easier to charge them rather than the casual better. And I also think that at the margins, it does attract certain betters that, you know, I mean, it's like the same way you have lots of hedge funds that are trading options that are not necessarily profitable, or you have individuals who are trading large sums in financial markets. It's not to say that everyone who brands themselves as an institutional trader or a sharp better is actually profitable. Lots of them are not. I think our sell to them is whether you're making millions of dollars or losing tens of thousands of dollars, we want to put you know, one to 3% back in your pocket per bet. That's not the same value proposition that we're necessarily selling casual recreational betters, but to someone who's more price sensitive, I think that is where we can deliver where others can't. Cool. So you launched, what did you say, six days ago? Is that right? What's it like? Been a long time since we launched for the first time. So take viewers and mostly listeners through the process of being a startup founder and seeing your thing go live for the first time. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly exciting. It's cool to see something that was just an idea I had while I was, you know, a senior in college, actually come to the market. I, you know, had lots of people along the way say, you you know, you'll never get there. It's way harder than you think. You're not actually going to be able to get a product live in a very difficult regulatory environment. So I think just from getting zero to one, I'd say is, and that's something that, you know, YC harps on a lot is like no KPI matters until you're actually live. And so I think we have a whole different suite of challenges now that we're live in market. They're dealing with, with regulatory issues and, you know, raising money and lots of sort of issues on, on that side. It's more on you know, acquisition, retention, P&L. I think we're, we're very happy with how our first few days have gone. I think our prices are already better than the large sports books in the U.S. by a percent or so. You know, you can look at our uh, odds on college football for the game tonight. You know, we, we sit within... FanDuel DraftKings spreads. So happy with how that's going. The trading operations, I think our pricing in-game and pre-game are, are very sharp. Our limits are in terms of how much liquidity is, is, is solid and we're onboarding other market makers. So it'll only get deeper and tighter. Yeah, I think the feedback from customers is very positive, which is a great feeling as a startup founder. A couple issues with here and there with deposits on Android and, and stuff like that and excited to sort of work out some of the kinks. But overall, I'd say it's going much better than we uh, anticipated. And I think that, you know, as we model out our CPAs, our CACs and unit economics, I think we're very optimistic about applying this model to other states. 
Cool. And you said you guys do all of your liquidity provisioning stuff yourselves right now, or do you, you have a few third parties helping you? For now, yeah, it's all ourselves. We're onboarding a couple of different market makers and we're going to allow individual users, hopefully, to provide liquidity in the next few months and hopefully enable programmatic trading via API and other features to pool liquidity and so on. And yeah, right now we're just offering American sports, college football, college basketball, NBA, NFL, MLB, NHL, and rolling out tennis and soccer and other sports in the coming coming months, as well as player props, parlays, requests for quote parlays, same game parlays, a lot of other sort of exotic derivatives and peer-to-peer contests. And we're excited about, you know, really building out a more holistic betting app. Cool. And can you share the names of the market makers or do you want to keep that quiet? We want to keep that quiet. No worries. Well, you're only on day six. I have your app up. I notice a lot of stuff doesn't have prices. I assume that's either there's some boundary condition that you don't want to price or you don't have the data happening for it. I mean, these are your day six is sort of like so young the life cycle of a startup. So like no knocking you there. I'm just kind of curious, like the stuff that you're not pricing is that do you know why that is or or it could just be a random bug? Yeah, I'm not sure which sport you're looking at, but for like some NHL, of the, for example, NHL will have that, I'd say, within an hour or so. Uh, it's, I guess it's early there. So Colorado's well, two hours behind, sort of the primary reason, I'd say. But we're, yeah, I mean, like, you know, the biggest challenge right now, you know, our traders were up till 3 a.m. last night. Right now we have, I mean, we, we don't even have like external traders. We have like our software engineers trading and, and stuff like that. So we wanted to wait to hire. We're, yeah, I think soon we're actually going to have 24-hour trading. By April, we'll have 24-hour trading. Right now, it's about, I'd say, 10 a.m. to you know 1 a.m. Got it. And how are you making money? Is it just sort of you're making money on the trading P&L? Our business plan in general is by charging market makers. That's like really where we see, if you think about what the actual service exchange is, what we provide, I'd say is that we offer more value to institutional traders. And I think that's who we view to be our sort of largest paying customer. And I think that's why we're shifting away from the sort of standard commission model that exists in the exchange space. We envision a future where all of our profit comes from the 1% to 2% of most profitable bettors, sort of similar to the Betfair premium charges, which I, I think you guys have as well. So yeah, I think that like will allow us from uh, a B2C brand perspective to say we are the only sports book, the only sports betting app that won't charge you ever, where you and a friend can put up $100 each and winner gets $200. We don't take a cent from that. And we just charge basically bottom line profit from our largest institutional traders. For right now, we're making money basically by being a participant in the exchange. But as I said, I think, you know, 12 to 18 months from now, we don't really plan on trading at all. Cool. Talk to me a little bit about because I saw in your press release, you're trying to launch as an exchange, but you la- launched as a sports book. Like what's going on with this, the CDG and, you know, what's preventing you from launching as an exchange right now? Yeah. So unlike in Jersey, Colorado has taken the approach that they want to create new regulations to govern exchanges. And they're in the process of approving those. Uh, we're optimistic that'll happen by March or so. And we've been working with Colorado Division of Gaming to get that over the finish line. I think the the primary issues that remain are like with the level of licensure for entities trading and whether they have to be in state or out of state and some of the tax implications as well. So 
it's just minor kinks that we're working out. And I think that's really the, I'd say the primary obstacle for allowing, you know, anyone to really be their own house to offer, you know, minus 105 on each side. We're also looking to build certain features to allow people to float their prices. So they'd be sort of tethered to our primary market maker or our own price. If we're at minus 106 on each side, a user can say, I want to be in minus 104. And then if we move to minus 105 and minus 107, they move to, you know, whatever, minus 103 and minus 105. So to have really competitive pressure moving towards, you know, minimizing the spread. So I think there's just a lot of, and I think they're sort of cognizant that this might be uh, precedent for other states adopting uh, exchanges in a more formalized way. And I'd say it's really necessary to really pave the way for financialization of sports betting more broadly, to have a blueprint of how it works for the Jane Streets of the world to uh, engage in sports betting. That will enable us to do far more than what we're currently offering. But I'd say even in this sort of V1 of our app, I'd say we really offer, I'd say, a a stronger product than really anyone else in, in the market from a price perspective. Great. Before I let you go, what do you want to be when you grow up? Good question. So I could certainly envision myself. I mean, even though I'd be more than content working on this for the rest of my life, I'd say uh, I have lots of other ideas in wide range of industries that I could see myself working on. Very interested in um, academia and politics still, so I could see myself getting back into that. Great. What's your 2024 election prediction? Well, I'd say Trump's a buy at 40 or 41% where he is now. I mean, I think both Trump and Biden are our buys at 41 and 31%. I would I'd probably sell Nikki Haley, but it, it's hard to say. That's, I'd say, my somewhat non-informed, uninformed take. I doubt it's that uninformed. I think Biden will take it, but I wish that he would step down and let another Democrat run, but I think Biden will win. I'm In a weird way, I'm happy that Trump is so in the mix because the more seriously people take him, the less likely he is to win. So I kind of want people to be afraid that he can win because that will keep people energized. People are largely desensitized to Trump. I think that people sort of underestimate like how normal his rhetoric has become. I mean, it is one thing when he first ran and he was going down the escalator and saying things about, you know, Mexico's not sending their best. But I think now you can really say anything and people wouldn't bat an eye. Are you involved in politics in France or Europe at all? No, no, I, I'd love to be, but my day job and three young kids fills my day. So I, at some point I want to be involved in politics, but I'm I'm just sort of a, a loud observer from the sideline right now. Well, I wish you the best. I think sports betting needs a lot more entrepreneurs. It seems like you have some really great ideas. I'm very excited to see you test those in the marketplace and I wish you guys the best. And, you know, I think this industry needs, like I said, new blood and and new innovation and and new thinking. So I, I, I wish you guys the best. Yeah. Thank you very much. Pleasure being on. And let me know if you guys ever have any interest in, in trading on the exchange. Cool. I will do. Cheers, right. Jacob. Sweet. Cheers. <laughs>